Revelation chapter 21 is where we are, so go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you haven't already. Uh, And so if you're paying attention, Revelation 22 is the end of the book, so that's pretty exciting for me. Uh, Every time we finish a new book, I get excited because I get, I'm like, I'm in my head, I'm already preaching the next book. I'm ready to go because I've been in this book for so long at this point. This is our 21st week and we'll, so 22nd week next week in this book. Um, but uh, it's really coming to the exciting end here that all this stuff that was going on in the book of Revelation is pointing us forward to this exciting end where we get to see just a picture of eternity. And so what we'll see in these first couple verses is an introduction of a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, followed by a description of God being among us while we are in that new place. And then the last bigger portion of this book, in verses 9 through 27, uh, we'll look specifically at the John's description of the city, New Jerusalem. So that's where the bigger focus is going to be uh, of those things. And uh, so we'll kind of pick four areas of that that we'll look at just to get a bigger idea of what this looks like. Uh, but let's get right into it tonight. Uh, I'm going to read these first couple verses. As I'm reading that, I want you to kind of look for the imagery that's used in this passage to describe how uh, New Jerusalem enters the scene. Maybe kind of think through why God would have us do that. Uh, or have us see it like this. So uh, here we go in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So here we have now a new heaven, a new earth, uh, right off the bat as a reminder At the end of chapter 20, we saw that the uh, present earth and heaven, it says, fled away. Uh, We saw here that it says that they had passed away. Uh, We also see in uh, Peter's writing, he describes it as it all being burnt up. And that's kind of where you get this uh, phrase from people when they talk about, oh, I've got this fancy new thing, but it got a scratch on it, but it's okay, it all burns someday. That's what it's talking about. All of the things that we understand and recognize about reality now are all very temporary things. These are things that are just temporary things that we have here. So we have now a new earth and a new heaven. Uh, A couple of things that kind of is fascinating to me about this, just uh, not things I can explain to you, just fascinating, just in case you're curious. I'm not going to give you any great answers here, but fascinating to me that we need a new heaven. Like in my mind, I just kind of, I just kind of read over that in the past, like that can't mean what I think it means. Uh, but it almost seems like he's saying like this heaven, uh, this, this amazing place, this paradise, we're told that Jesus tells us today you'll be with me in paradise, speaking to the other men on the cross, uh, that this paradise where all of our believing family is currently, this heaven that they experience is actually a, a temporary sort of heaven that's going to be leading into a new heaven, somehow a different heaven. Uh, that heaven, it seems to also encompass a new earth, and it's honestly time to trade this earth in on a new model. This one's running down, got a lot of miles, it's probably time, right? But in that picture, we see just, uh, it's just different, I think, than most of us think of heaven. A lot of times when we think of heaven, we think of like clouds floating around in the sky, and we're just kind of cruising around on clouds and playing our harps. But what the scripture describes for us is that there is this new creation altogether, this new earth, and it all is somehow encompassed now by a new heaven. And so kind of just a cooler picture for me, it's a, it's a bigger picture, but it's an important one to see. Again, if we're going to have eternal life, it's going to be more than just floating on clouds, playing harps. There is somehow this earth to it, and it's a new earth, completely different, completely changed, a new creation. And then he begins to describe 
Now Jerusalem coming down, this holy city, it's the, not the old Jerusalem, that's going to be gone, but a new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God. Now Doug, how does he describe, or what imagery does he use to describe this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven? As a bride adorned for her husband. As a bride adorned for her husband. And why did I ask you that question, Doug? Because I just got married. Because Doug just got married. So Doug knows what it's like to see his bride adorned and coming down the aisle. And I was there when he got married, and he was full-on heaving, crying. He was like shoulders shaking. <laughs> Couldn't catch his breath. It was great, actually. Was I really beautiful. enjoyed watching it. It was what? It was beautiful. It was beautiful, Doug. Emotion. It really was beautiful to see kind of that full-on emotion there. But just that moment. Uh, and he's not the only one. Lots of guys cry at their weddings. Isn't that the story, anyway? Uh, I did not cry at my wedding. Uh, I had the scared thing going on. I was completely scared at my wedding. And so as Sheila comes down the aisle, she looks at me and she can tell I'm freaked out. And so she just does one of these winks at me. And then it was all smooth sailing after that. But she's just walking down the aisle. I'm like, there she is. And I'm all stiff and tight. And like, I can't believe this is happening. And she just winks at me. I'm like, all right, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this day. But it's this picture, it's this image, it's this idea, particularly for those of you who have gone through this, if you're this husband who has seen his bride, I mean, the whole wedding ceremony is shrouded in this idea of, uh, the, of Christ and the church, but it's also in this idea of this moment where the bride appears. And so you have the, all of these little traditions that I sometimes think are kind of silly things. I'm like, let's just get this wedding over with. I got a schedule to keep, say your vows, kiss each other, and go, go just go. Go be married now. You've, you've done your thing, right? Like, just get the paperwork Amen. signed. But what's that? Amen. A- Amen, says Doug's. Yeah, and I'm planning my daughter's. Well, my wife's planning my daughter's wedding right now. There's a lot that goes into that, right? But here's the deal. Like, the husband can't see his wife in the dress. It's like this whole thing so that there's going to be this surprise moment when he sees her. And then you have all the people in the sanctuary. They're all sitting down. And you have, you know, all the bridesmaids and groomsmen come in. And people are kind of like, yeah, I know that one or whatever. You know, that, that dress doesn't look good on her. You know, we, we're just kind of, it's just kind of this kind of moment. But then all of a sudden, the music changes. And everybody stands up. And the back doors fly open. And everybody's attention is on the bride as she comes down the aisle. And it is a, it is a long-awaited moment. It's intended to be a beautiful scene. Well, think for yourselves now about the plan of God finally coming to completion. He's wanted to show us all along what He has for us in eternity in heaven. And now this is the moment where Jerusalem is coming down, and the only way John can describe it as a bride being received by her husband. And, and I think for God, he just, he's been waiting for this moment. He's like, you can't, you can't believe what I'm about to show you. In fact, he's so excited, he's been dropping hints all throughout eternity, right? All throughout history, giving just little hints. He just, just wait, what heaven? You're just going to just wait for heaven. It's going to be amazing. So this is this moment now where this new city, this holy city, Jerusalem, is coming down from heaven, and it's described as this beautiful, beautiful scene. So we pick it up in verse 3, and it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Uh, Now, so uh, as we track through this next section here, John's not just now seeing this new Jerusalem, this holy city, but he's now hearing a voice from the throne, which later in this passage is going to be uh, described to us as actually the voice of God. It's he, it's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who's actually going to speak at the end of this. But you're going to hear this voice from the throne speaking into this situation as John views it all. So he hears this, and as we track through this, we're going to be looking for two phrases. Uh, The first phrase is, he will or I will. And so it's just describing all the things in this that God is going to be doing for us. And then the second phrase that I find exciting is the, the no longer. There's no longer this, this, and this. And that's the list of junk that's gone from our world. Uh, but anyway, we'll start with the, the things that he says, I will, or he will. And so right off the bat in verse 3, we see he will, speaking of God, he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, this is the, the grand plan of God from the beginning. All throughout creation, God has desired to be with, to dwell with, to be among his people, or even as it says here, to tabernacle with them. There's this idea that he's going to dwell among us. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it says that he used to walk with them in the cool of the day. And just imagine that kind of powerful thing, that connection that God had by being with his people. Then you fast forward that after the fall, after sin, there's this broken relationship, and yet God still wants to dwell with, be with his people. And so he had them build a tabernacle in the wilderness, a a tent of meeting, so that, and you see this happening in the Old Testament, the fire of God would come down and fill that place And the tribes of Israel were all around it. It was God's way of dwelling with or tabernacling with his people. It was all part of God's continual plan to show us that he wants to be with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. You fast forward beyond that, they move into the promised land. They now have the original Jerusalem, the one that's going to be gone at this period. Uh, But the original Jerusalem and Solomon builds this temple. And what happened when they dedicated the temple? Again, the glory of God descends and fills the temple with glory. It's God again dwelling amongst his people. Now, after the temples had been destroyed, we fast forward to Jesus. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. It was that same concept. And so again, for 30-some years, you had God in the flesh dwelling amongst his people, walking throughout the earth. But it didn't stop there because after that time period, when Jesus ascended, we're told that the Spirit of God descended not only on his people, but dwells within his people. And we are now called the temple of God. Each one of us, the temple of God, who have the Holy Spirit in us now, we have God dwelling with us. It's constantly been God's plan to dwell with his people. But all of those were just foreshadowing. They were temporary things pointing to this final dwelling together, living together, being with 
God. All of those things pointing forward to this. So that's the first thing. He will dwell among his people. The next one to me is, is something uh, somewhat intimate in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so I'm not sure how this plays out. I don't know like if you, when we finally all get to heaven, if there's like the tear wiping line and everybody has to go through the tear wiping station to make their way into heaven. Uh, That's a joke. I'm just pointing that out. That's not reality. I don't think that's what it's like. But it describes it as God wiping away your tears. Now, if you've ever seen somebody who's crying and then somebody who loves them just reach up and just wipe that tear away, it's so gentle it's so loving, it's so intimate. And this is what we see God doing for us. It says He's going to wipe every tear away. Um, now, as that progresses, you'll find out that that's actually the end of the tears. We'll get into that in the, the no longers, but it's just this intimate moment that we will have with God where He wipes away every tear. Powerful to think about that moment. Uh, you jump down to verse 6 and you see God speaking here specifically. It says in verse 6, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And so he's giving us access to the spring of eternal life. And then in verse 7, to he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. And so we have kind of this clear picture now of the relational nature of how God sees it. He sees it as he is their God, but we are his children. It's this He is creating this relationship-based deal here. Now, he says that there is an inheritance to those who overcome. So before we talk about the inheritance, we have to talk about who the overcomers are. We find that described for us by John in 1 John chapter 5. This is an important passage in, in my mind because the John who wrote the book of Revelation is the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So in 1st John here, in chapter 5, we look at verses 4 and 5 where he describes to us who the overcomers are. He says it like this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So who's the one who overcomes the world? It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now we understand now when he says he who overcomes will inherit these things, these things pointing back to all of what he's listed here. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, God dwelling amongst them, the wiping away of the tears. There's going to be a removal of things. All of this is the inheritance that God's given us. Now, some of you might have experienced a situation in your life where you got some great inheritance, but those inheritances usually are not as great as this, right? Like, uh, I'm just going to put this out there. My parents have promised me that my inheritance is their RV. Number one, I don't want an RV. Number two, that thing's not paid off yet. I don't think that's an inheritance, right? Like, but that's what they have to give, and that's, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to make fun of that because, you know, I love my parents and all that good stuff. But that compared to an eternal new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, God dwelling with me and wiping away every tear, man, that sounds a little bit better than that RV to me. This inheritance that we have as children of God. Now we're going to go back through it now. We want to look at this phrase, no longer. So when you go back to verse 4, you'll see right after he wipes away every tear, there's a list of things that are no longer there. He says, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain 
because the first things have passed away. No longer any death. And we dealt with this briefly last week at the end of chapter 20. We saw there, I think in verse 14, yeah, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, Death is dead. Death has been put to death. That for me is kind of a powerful picture. This last week we had a funeral here at the church. A gal from our church had passed away and it was just kind of this, this moment where her mom comes up to me and we're preparing for this funeral. Her mom comes up to me and says, Sean, Sean, I don't know how non-believers do this. I don't know how people who don't have hope deal with the death of somebody that they love. There's a reality to this. If death is put to death, for us, we see then that death is actually a momentary, temporary thing. And that's how Christians would view death. It seems so permanent from our perspective because all we have is our temporary time here on earth to look at it through. But as you go through the Scriptures, you get this bigger picture that death is actually it's a momentary and temporary thing for the believer because we then enter from death into eternal life. Death suddenly isn't so scary or painful for us. In fact, Paul says it this way, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There's a difference there when we can think through death in those terms. For the believer, death isn't quite as scary. It's not that we don't still lose things in death. I don't want it to make it sound like death should be easy for Christians. It's not. We lose things in death. Uh, We lose the relationship with the person who passed away. There's a great loss for us here, but when that person dies in God's timing, they're now entering into God's rest but they're entering into eternal life. It's powerful. The gal that had passed away this week uh, had been wheelchair-bound for a few years. And Sheila says, Sean, you know that scene in chapter 20 where it was talking about Jesus coming back and all the saints with him riding their horses? Can you imagine, Robin, in that moment going from being a quadriplegic to following Christ on a horse back to the earth? Wow. It's eternal life that we gain. So we have this idea there's no longer any death. With that, then, there's no longer any mourning. In heaven, not only will people not die, in heaven, there's no reason to mourn because there's nothing bad to mourn while you get there. Uh, There's no crying in heaven, just like in baseball. Because I think when he wiped away your tears, he like gets that tear duct out of there or something like that, right? Uh, there's also no more pain in heaven. I know a lot of people that are looking forward to that. There are people that live every single day with physical or emotional pain. And their hope, their peace, their strength to go forward is this knowledge that when God takes them home, there'll be no more pain. To have pain be gone is such a powerful thing that God has promised to us as an inheritance. Now we see here that not everybody is an overcomer. Verse 8 describes those who will not be uh, in heaven, not be in this new Jerusalem with us. It says, the cowardly and unbelieving, abominable, not the snowman type, just the regular type of abominable, uh, no murderers or immoral persons or sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, all of them will have their part in the lake of fire. Now, Real quick in this, 
Uh, these are very important words, but it's not an exhaustive list. Like there's a whole bunch of lists like this in Scripture that list out all kinds of things that people do that are sinful, that will separate us from God, that will cause us to not have eternal life. But I don't want you to get caught up on these labels if you're a believer. See, sometimes as Christians, we take our sins and we label ourselves by those things. We come to this conclusion that, and it's true, right? So if I lie, what does that make me? I'm a liar. Yeah. So we kind of label, we identify ourselves like that. And we're not the only ones that do that. The world does that. If somebody's murdered somebody, they're a murderer. If somebody has been divorced, they're a divorcee, right? You have these ways that we kind of label people by their circumstances. But this is not the way God sees the believer. That powerful forgiveness that was given to us by Jesus Christ, laid out for us last week in chapter 20, is that God edits our book of deeds, the thing that lists out all the stuff we've done. And what he does is he takes all the sin out of the believer's life. That is now gone, and we're no longer identified by our sin, but we're identified as being children of God. We're identified as being righteous and true, not because we were righteous, but because of Christ's righteousness applied to us. So if you're a believer today, you are not a liar. That might be who you were. That's not who you are now. If you're a believer today, you are not an adulterer. That might have been who you were before, but that is not who you are now. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ, and your label is belongs to God, child of God, overcomer. That's who you are now. There's this, uh, I call it retchology. Uh, there's this kind of theological thought, which has, it's based in truth, uh, but this idea that all of us are just wretches. And we even sing it, right? Who saved a wretch like me. But he didn't save us and keep us as wretches. We may have been wretches before we got saved, but that's not who we are now. It says this, he takes all of our sins, casts them as far as the east is from the west, buries them in the sea of forgetfulness, throws them behind his back. It says that the all-knowing God remembers our sins no more. And by golly, if he's going to forget about them, can't we? Can't we move on from those things and see ourselves as who we are now? It seems that it says also, the idea here is that when our sins were placed on Jesus Christ, they were put to death, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ was applied to us. So now God sees us as being as righteous as His own Son, Jesus, not by our works, but by His. That's who we are now. We are not the people on this list, but for some people who have not overcome through faith in Jesus Christ, they are on this list, and their ultimate end is the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Now, a lot of people don't like that imagery. They don't like this idea of there being an eternal hell. But can I just say this? If you don't like it, don't go there. Right? If you don't don't want hell to exist, it doesn't have to exist for you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust Him. You don't have to go there. Some people are going to argue with God about whether this is fair or not. Fair? He's telling you you don't have to go there, and it costs you nothing. Don't go there. When we do that, what we do is we create God in our image and say that He has to conform to our way of thinking. And if I think that punishment is too harsh, then that means it's too harsh, and God's wrong, and I'm right. Do you see the argument that people make? That's pretty messed up. You think you have things figured out better than God? You don't have to go to the lake of fire. He's offering salvation for free for whosoever will. 
whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You can avoid that which is called here in verse 8, the second death. Now, when we get to verse 9 through 27, I'm going to read through this. It's a long section, and then I'll go back and take it piece by piece and kind of put it together so you can see what's happening here. But this is now John doing his best using the language that he has to describe to us what he's seeing in this heavenly vision of this new city. And so verses 9 through 27, just going to be a description of New Jerusalem. And so it almost reads like a blueprint. It's kind of like when you go on vacation, right? And you have gone somewhere amazing, and you see this amazing place, and then you get back home and you try to describe it to your friends and family, and they look bored. And you're like, how can you be bored? That place was so amazing. You wouldn't believe there was a lake there. Well, I've been to a lake before. We have one just right up here at Guernsey. It's not that, you know, it's a lake. No, but it's the greatest lake ever. Well, Guernsey's the greatest lake I've ever been to. What are you trying to say? No, but you don't understand. There were like trees all around. Well, I've seen trees at lakes. Like for us to just verbally describe what we saw, what we experienced is sometimes kind of hard. And that's what John's going through. He's doing his best uh, to describe this. It's really kind of cool. It's almost like, and you're going to see this in verse 9, he's going to be taken up to a high mountain so he can see the whole thing. But it's almost like this angel is allowing him to zoom in on certain parts of it. You know, like on your iPhone, like when you're can't read because it's too small and you have to like, and it just gets bigger. It's kind of like the angels allowing John to have those moments. And so he's going to be zooming in on just these four different things, the glory of God. He's going to zoom in on the walls and then on the walls, he's going to focus in on the gates and he's going to focus in on the foundation stones. So he's going to look at those four things. He'll mention briefly the city and the river, but those will be described in the next chapter. But it's going to be like he's zooming in on those things. Now, If he was already going to zoom in on it, I wish he would have taken his angelic phone to heaven with him and taken a picture and just pasted that for us right here on page 1195 in my Bible. That'd be so much easier, right? But we've got to use the words that are written here to try to get a picture of this. So it's going to be a little bit of work for you guys. We can't zoom in like he did. You guys ever do this on on books and magazines? The iPhone has ruined me. I'll be reading and I'm like, that's awful small text. And I'll try to like spread the text out on my my Bible, like, oof, why can't I read that today? Doesn't work. Just going to tell you that. You can do it a number of times. Also, I do this one. So I've got an iPad. I've got a computer, right? And so the iPad's all touchscreen. If I'm away from my computer for a few days, I'll like walk in in the morning when I come to work and I'll be like tapping the screen. Like, why isn't this thing opening? I don't understand. Why can't I get to the next app here? Oh, wait, I have to use the mouse. It's like my brain has already been reprogrammed for the future here. Uh, Anyway, all that was just beside the point. Uh, So let me read through verses 9 through 27. Do your best to kind of visualize this. I'll go in and I'll zoom in on these four areas, hopefully to give you a little bit of clarity there. Uh, But again, this is a long section. So verse 9, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel." 
There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measures its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Pretty convenient, right? Human measurements and angelic measurements are the same. Uh, The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, uh, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we're going to look now, we've heard kind of the overview, but we're going to look back, and I took notes for myself because I can remember some things, but every once in a while I need notes for my sermons. So here's my notes of these four areas. First, we're going to look at the glory of the city, then the walls, and then within the walls, we'll look at the gates and the foundation stones. So uh, the first idea is that it is filled with glory, and it's the glory of God in verse 11. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like that of a costly stone as a stone of crystal jasper. This idea of glory here is the brilliance, the reflection, the light of God. The glory of God in this moment is kind of the reflection of the light of God. And you'll see as you kind of follow that through, as he's trying to describe the glory as best he can, he describes it as like the brilliance of a very costly stone, a clear jasper stone. So he's just trying to to put words to something he's never seen before, something that no one else has ever seen before. He's trying to describe something heavenly in human terms. So he's doing his best to make it clear for us, but it's just to understand that it's the glory of God that illuminates this place. And in fact, we see that if we jump down to verse 23, it's illumined and it's the lamp, the lamp that illuminates illuminates it is the Lamb of God. So God himself, the Lamb Jesus Christ, they are the light that illuminates this holy city. And it's going to be a lot of light because you'll find out here in a few moments that this is one big city. Uh, There's also this idea that the glory that's there actually comes partially from kings and nations. And that's kind of an interesting thing because we don't think of of, as as heaven in terms of kings and nations. Uh, The best way I could comprehend this for myself, the way I understand it is, of all the people who got saved, all of them were part of some nation at some time. 
Some of them are actually kings. Now, as people, we glorify our nations. We know that, right? Because that's what we did yesterday. We blew up fireworks in honor of America, right? That's how we glorify it. We just boom, 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 and we spend a bunch of money, and it's pretty, right? But it's our way of kind of glorifying our country. Uh, Sometimes people will glorify their kings or their leaders. What's happening in this moment, though, all those people now in heaven are giving all glory to God. There's no glory for nations in heaven. There's no glory for kings all glory now is going to God. So kind of that idea that anything that was glorified on earth, not going to be glorified in heaven because in the brilliance of God, in the light of who God is, the wonderfulness of who He is, all of those things would pale to nothing. So it's illumined now. Uh, we also find out, by the way, in this city that there's no temple there because God Himself is the temple. He is the tabernacle. We saw that in verse 3 earlier. We see it in verse 22 here. So as God is dwelling in the city Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem that is part of God's new heaven, it's lit day and night by the glory of God, which means there is no night, right? It's just always bright there. And that's the way it describes it here. It's always light there. There is no night. And so that's the glory of the city. So if you can just imagine how illuminated it is, it's like a, it's like an, it's like an Ikea or something, right? Like it's always lit up, right? It's just kind of this beautiful moment, but in ways that we can't comprehend because we've never seen anything like this. Next, he begins to describe the walls. We're told right away in verse 12 that the walls are high walls, Just so you get a grasp of how high they are, he then later on measures it out for us. So think about this. This city has a high wall, and that wall is 1,500 miles high. 1,500 miles high. Now, you can't really comprehend anything that high. You really can't, right? Like if you go to Denver, it's called the Mile High City, right? Because it's one mile above sea level. Well, this thing is 1,500 Denver's high, right? Put it in perspective like this. Imagine you're flying on an airplane. And then you hear, this is your captain speaking. We're cruising at an altitude of 35,000 feet. Seven miles high. This is 1,500 miles high. International Space Station. This is, I think it was four or five times higher than the International Space Station. Are you starting to grasp the size of this now? Now, that's the height, but then its length and its width, we're told, are equal. That means 1,500 miles long, each wall of the city. So I had to comprehend that because 1,500, it's just a number to me. I had to comprehend that. So if I got in my car right now and I started to drive towards the coast, I would find myself in New York before I got 1,500 miles. That's how far that is. Now, if I, instead of driving that way, drove the other way down to Mexico, I would be in the middle of Mexico somewhere, some city I've never heard of. I'd tell you what it is, but I've already forgotten. But it's in the middle of Mexico. This is one city. Do you see how big, how massive this place is? One city, the new Jerusalem, and it's that high. 
It actually answers one of those weird questions that I have. How can all those Christians from all eternity fit into heaven? Well, think of how many floors this place must have in it. It's got to be massive. Now, the walls themselves, not only are they that high, not only that long and that wide, but each individual wall is 72 yards wide. That's bigger than the width of our building. Each wall, that's how wide the individual wall is. Three-fourths of a football field just across the wall. This thing is intended to be giving us a picture of just how massive it is. It should seem overwhelmingly huge to us. Now, in each wall... There's going to be gates and foundation stones, and it seems like there's three gates, north, east, south, west, and probably three stones, north, east, south, west. And these gates and these stones are going to be described as well, but the walls, we're told, they're made of jasper, and so if you know what jasper looks like, imagine it, but only imagine it kind of a clear, brilliant, translucent type jasper that you can almost kind of see through but that's kind of the picture of the walls but now we want to focus in just a minute on the gates so in verse 12 it starts to describe the gates Uh, it says that there are 12 gates and at the gates there are 12 angels in my mind they're bouncers but that's probably not true Uh, which is interesting because we talk about the pearly gates of heaven right And, and in all the things we hear about the pearly gates of heaven is it angels that are there or who's there it's saint peter isn't it People get some weird ideas in their head. But that's not the end of the story of the gates. In addition to that, each of the gates have a name on them. And each of the gates have one name from one of the tribes of Israel. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 gates. And it has the name of the tribe above that gate. And it's almost like, hey, if you're from the tribe of Levi, this is your entrance. Hey, if you're from the tribe of Judah, this is your entrance. It's just kind of this kind of neat picture as each gate now has a name of one of the tribes of Israel on it. That's in verse 13. You jump down to verse 21, and at these gates, I don't know how big they are, but they seem pretty massive, or at least it would have to be. But this is where you get the idea of the pearly gates of heaven, but it's different than you imagine. I googled this. I looked up pearly gates of heaven, and all the pictures that I found of the pearly gates of heaven, there might be some pillars of pearls kind of over here, but they're golden gates for some reason. And it just looks kind of like a garden gate, but that's not what's described here. This is one pearl. The entire gate is one pearl. Can you imagine the oyster? (laughs) The clam that made that pearl, right? But it's just this massive pearl that's for each one of the gates. We move on from there to the foundation stones. Again, we find in verse 14 that there's 12 of theirs. Uh, 12 foundation stones as well, but the foundations that you'll find in this case have names on them, but it's not the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. They have the names of the 12 apostles, which is fascinating because now what God has done is He's taken the nation of Israel, the Jews, He's taken the 12 apostles representing the Gentiles, and He's put them together. In the book of Ephesians, He says, this is a mystery that the two have become one. This idea that He's bringing it all together Uh, in this sense. And so all this kind of coming together, we have the harmony of the Old Testament, the harmony of the New Testament brought together. I think it will be interesting uh, when you get to heaven to figure out which 12 names are there, by the way. Uh, When you you think about this, this is an interesting thing. 
Uh, is it going to be Judas? Because he was one of the 12. Is his name going to be on one of those foundation stones? If so, it was probably like, remember that guy? Ooh, don't want to be Judas, right? But some people believe that the 12th apostle is Matthias. They drew lots after Judas died to see who would replace him. And some people believe the 12th apostle will be Paul, who calls himself an apostle born out of season or out of his time. Big discussion there. We'll figure it out when we get to heaven. Now, first service, and I don't know why this didn't strike me right away. First service, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to spend all of eternity walking all the way around those walls, reading the names on those things to figure out which one of those apostles is there. And then it hit me. Wait, God's there. Can't I just ask him? Be like, hey, which one of the apostles made the cut? That'd be the easier way to go. But None of that's relevant here. Just understand that the names of the 12 apostles are on those stones as well. Each one of those stones, it says, is adorned. Uh, It is a precious stone, and it's going to give us this list of 12 different precious stones. I'm not going to read through that whole list again because that was pretty impressive that I've done it three times today. I don't need to read through it again for you now. I said most of those words somewhat accurately. But each one is a different type of stone, uh, Sheila found something fascinating on this. My wife, Sheila, this morning, just for fun, she just Googled that. And the first thing that came up was a picture of the birthstones. And it showed how each one of the birthstones corresponds in one way or another to these stones. Kind of fascinating. Had no idea. For me, it's a different picture, though. It's the Old Testament picture of the high priest. He wore a breastplate, and each stone on there was a different stone. It's that same picture. It's these 12 stones. And for me, it's just kind of the handiwork of God that all throughout creation, again, he's been dropping hints of his ultimate plan. All throughout creation, he's been giving us just these little bitty foreshadowings, these little insights of what eternity will be like. And so we have now all of those 12 stones that are listed there in verse 19 and 20 that'll tell you what, what's being seen there. So you can look those up if you want to, or just ask Pastor Tom. He has a degree in geology. It's about time he used it, right? So just tell, hey, Tom, uh, you know, what does a chrysolite stone look like? I thought it said crystallite the first time, which is that little drink mix stuff, but that's not what it is. It's chrysolite. So ask him what it is. Hmm? That rocks. That rocks. It's bad. Bad day. Um, But anyway, just asking those questions, oddly enough, somebody came up to me after service and she's like doing this and she's got a a, uh, bracelet thingy hanging off her arm there. And she goes, this is chrysoprase, which I thought was a made up word before today. Like I didn't even know that was a real thing, but she had this little bracelet on. She's like, this is chrysoprase. So there you go. Real kind of stone. So you can kind of get an idea. Again, this is just John doing his best though to show you this heavenly thing that he saw. He's trying to describe the undescribable to you. It's intended to give us this amazing vision of what heaven will be like, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and that new Jerusalem is the most amazing city you've ever seen. And this is just a glimpse for us. Now, it does finish out with these sobering words, and so I do think we have to remind ourselves of this. In verse 27, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, Sandy, who gets to come into the city? Only those who have their names in the book of life. 
Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, we covered that last week, but there's just this understanding that after the judgment seat, the great white throne judgment, there will be only certain names in the Lamb's book of life. We believe that these are because they're the overcomers. Their name is in there because of their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no sin credited to their account, so their name's not going to be blotted out of that book. And then in that book of life, we'll have only the names of believers. And these are the only people that will be entering into heaven. So you get all of these songs that have been written over the years. One of them is, is when the roll is called up yonder, an old hymn. And then uh, there was another one, is your name in that book? But just kind of that same idea. But it really should put us into a position where we think for ourselves now. We ask that question, is my name in that book? Well, if you've made a profession of Jesus Christ as Lord, if you believe, you are in that book. And all this inheritance is promised to you that you will be a child of God, dwelling eternally with Him in heaven. And in this moment, you can find great encouragement in that. But man, I'm telling you, if you don't know, if you've not taken the time to just sit down and say, what do I believe about this? What are you waiting for? I mean, really? Just figure it out. And you might have a ton of questions. It's okay to have a ton of questions. Ask those questions. Just email them to Doug at CalvaryChapelCheyenne.org. He will answer them all for you, right? Every single question. Every single question, right? Every single question. Yeah, just send all your questions to him. He'll answer those questions for you. There's, There's legitimate questions that might be weighing you down. But a certain part of this is taken in. It's in faith. It's those who believe by faith in Jesus Christ. But take the time and do that. Examine yourself to see whether your name is in that book or not. Have you made that profession of faith? So here we go. We're going to close in prayer, and then Doug's going to finish it off for us, and we'll sing some more. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful again for this picture. I pray for each believer in the room today that this would be an encouragement to them, that it will help them get through the difficulty that they might have today or this upcoming week, that if there's pain there, they can look forward to a time of no pain. If there's hopelessness, they can look forward to a time of hope, that they would know that they have a future, an eternal life. Lord, I would pray as well for those that are maybe here or maybe listening online that have not made a profession of faith, that your Spirit would be speaking to them now, that they would recognize that you're calling them to make a decision to make a stand, to stand in faith, to believe and to be saved. Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.